Welcome to Savvy Sabs Podcast. I'm your host, Sabrina Salvati. My special guest today is a journalist. She's an actress. She's a documentary filmmaker, a singer. She does it all. Everyone, please give a huge welcome to Eleanor Goldfield. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks so much for coming on. So I have to tell you, like you and I have something in common. I noticed that you have lived or you grew up partially in Europe and partially in the US and I did the same thing. And I'm curious if you can tell everyone a little bit about that and if you feel that that in any way, shape or form has helped like form your political ideology. Oh my gosh, absolutely. Um, so my mom's Swedish and my father is the, the son of Russian Jewish immigrants that he grew up in um, Brooklyn, New York. Uh, my mom moved to the States in the 80s um, and then moved back to Sweden because she was like, this is nonsense. Um, <laughs> and um, so I, I, I spent a good deal of time growing up in Sweden and then also in Charlotte, North Carolina, which um, are very different. <laughs> Uh, and I definitely think that even before I could really name it, even though I, even before I could really, I, I had like the vocabulary to, to describe the differences, I was sociopolitically affected by the stark differences. And I mean, it's impossible not to be just something as simple as, oh, here, you know, mom and dad get six weeks vacation, but they don't get that in North Carolina or, Hey, when I go to the dentist in Sweden, nobody asks like, where's your mom? So she can pay for it. Um, so just little things that you start to, to pick up on, even when you're like five or something, um, that, that then after a while you start to be able to place sociopolitical language to and say, Oh, that's because the, you know, over here, Healthcare is a human right. Over here, it's not. Um, and it's definitely not to say that Sweden doesn't have problems. Sweden has a lot of problems. Uh, but particularly for, uh, as a child, the problems, you know, the deeper systemic problems weren't as, as glaring in Sweden as they are um, in, in, in the U.S. And Sweden has also moved a lot into, to the right since I was a kid. Um, but absolutely, and I think that the the way that my parents raised me in uh, in between two continents really, really pushed me to to become the person that I am. And I don't know that I I don't know that I would have had I not had those really stark experiences growing up, for sure. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, I spent part of my childhood in Germany and part in different states in the United States. I went to high school in North Carolina, so I'm, I'm very familiar with um, Charlotte and all of the like, big cities in North Carolina. But for me, I had the same question. I was just like, I don't understand. Like in Germany, like people didn't have to pay to go to the doctor. I don't under what what is a copay? I didn't even know what that was. <laughs> like when we came back, I was like, what if? I was like, what yeah. am I paying for? So right. just very different. Now, I know that you're also involved in activism. And I was wondering, was there like one event in particular that made you say, you know what, I want to be an activist? I wouldn't say that there was one in particular. Um, but I think also growing up with the parents that I grew up with was I oftentimes find it fascinating to ask people whose parents were like totally not politically active or anything, 
how did how did you like how did you become this activist or this radical? Uh, for me, it's almost like I had no excuse. <laughs> it would be weird if I hadn't. Uh, my father's a historian uh, specializing in Southern history, predominantly from the period of the Civil War through the Civil Rights period. Uh, my mother is an artist, but was always very, I shouldn't say but, uh, a lot of artists are politically active, an artist and also very politically active, particularly uh, again, like with environmental issues, um, fought against uh, nuclear power at home in Sweden, but also did environmental work here in the U.S. And so growing up, it was always kind of part of my, my just, you know, everyday existence to care about what was going on. Uh, you know, at dinner, when we would have family dinners, there would always be some conversation, even if it was just between the adults about what was happening. Uh, the only TV that I was allowed to watch during the week was the news, which you could argue was, uh, you know, child abuse. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, but I. So the only thing that I was allowed to really take in as a kid on a daily basis was kind of what's going on in the world. Um, but I'd say something, something that was a, a couple of things that were really uh, powerful shifts for me. One was when I was, I think, like eight or nine. I went to get the mail and there was a, a, a packet from World Wildlife Fund and they, there was, I opened it and there was a picture of like a tiger hung up from a tree. Uh, you know, it was talking about like tiger poaching and I, uh, I had always had like a very strong connection to tigers. My mother had, had been very influenced by the Chinese Zodiac and I was born in the, the year of the tiger. So I was just inundated with tigers as a kid. Uh, so I had a special love for those, and I remember walking up to one of my parents and, and asking, "What what is this? What are they doing to the tiger?" And, and they, I think they explained it in you know the way that you'd explain it to a kid. You'd you'd be honest, but you'd you know you try to lessen the horror a bit and be like, "Well, this is something that you know that people do, and it's it's not good and it's not nice, and so there are people that are are trying to to stop it from happening." Um, and so I was like, well, then I need to help these people. <laughs> and mm -hmm. so I saved up all of my allowance and I donated it to, to World Wildlife Fund. And that, that was one of the first moments where I realized that I, as an individual, could somehow support or assist people who were doing things that actively helped others. Now, I wouldn't necessarily say give your money to World Wildlife Fund or any big uh, NGO, but I think that that sort of that first shift made me realize that oh, I'm not on the outside of the people that are working to promote change. I can be one of those people just by stepping into this space, even at the age of like nine. Um, I think another time that was really pivotal for me was um, my father wrote a book called "Still Fighting the Civil War," mm -hmm. um, which is very. Uh, the title kind of all. And KKK really didn't like that my father, who's a, uh, a Northern Jew, was talking smack about them. Um, so they threatened him and basically our entire family. Um, and I remember uh, hearing about these threats and I remember that there were cops that were, at, you know, that came to our house and, uh, and I just, I, I remember that being a, a moment where I was, I was just thinking like, why would they be so mad about 
history and they lost, right? Isn't that just the fact? And I don't understand why they're so angry. <laughs> and uh, that was another pivotal moment where I realized that, you know, even though these are, these are hard and true facts, um, a lot of people don't want to accept them. And uh, there is a deep seated hatred for people who, who would uh, attempt to speak the truth. So I think in, in, in separate ways, those two moments, when I was relatively young, you know, like nine or 10, were really uh, pivotal for, for me in the way that I thought about the world around me and how I interact with it. Awesome. So uh, you're into Tiger. So I have to ask, did you watch Tiger King? You know, I did not. Um, my partner watched it. And so I, I, I got a little bit of information from him. And I really realized <laughs> as soon as he started telling me, I was like, I want nothing to do with this. I want nothing to do with this person. I hope that those animals are saved, but this guy can take a long walk off a short pier and I just wanted nothing to do with it. Okay, good. Yeah, I was thinking to myself just a minute ago, I was like, I hope she didn't watch Tiger King. Oh my gosh, oh my gosh. <laughs> no, I did not. So you released a new EP titled No Solo. There's a song on there, I was listening to it earlier, it's called um, Child of Immigrants. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Sure. So uh, the the EP has three original uh, songs and then two spoken word pieces that are are set to sound design, basically. Um, so Child of Immigrants is one of the spoken word pieces, and it's it's a piece that I've had for uh, a couple of years now. It was actually spurred by uh, a moment at a, a, a basically like an immigrant rights protest where I was a, a part of it. And there were these counter protests, counter protesters, you know, that were, you know, like saying America for Americans, whatever the hell that's supposed to mean. Um, and so I walked up to them and I said, well, I'm the child of immigrants. Am I the problem? And they said, well, no, because you're and I could tell they were like desperately seeking for some like way to say because you're white without saying that. <laughs> and so they finally landed on, well, your parents must have come here legally. And I was like, actually, no, uh, my dad's family uh, was basically smuggled in through the Canadian border, uh, parts of them. Others came through Ellis Island, but others were like, you know what? Screw that shit. I'm going around the back way. <laughs> um, and so it really like uh, I and of course, basically, they couldn't answer the question because the answer is because you're white. And they just didn't want to come right out and say it. And so I, I, made, I wrote that piece um, also, uh, also because I was inspired by a, a sort of a comment by a friend of mine who's, we oftentimes go out on, on um, uh, uh, you know, on jobs together. And she's the, one of the main driving forces behind my documentary. And she's a, a, a member of the Cherokee Nation. Um, and she, we were at a protest and she was like, if I see one more sign that says this is a country of immigrants, I'm going to set it on fire. Mm. Um, and I was like, yeah, that's bullshit, right? Because it's not a country of immigrants. It's a country of genocide and settler colonialism and slavery. And then later, once a country on that foundation was established, then you have immigration, but you don't have, immigration and settler colonialism are not the same thing. Um, 
And so I, I felt the need to write something that not only spoke to the like the stark differences between these issues, but also that spoke to something about our shared humanity um, and how me being the child of immigrants is in recognition that this is not my land, um, that I come from a diaspora that is spread across many parts of the world, but not here. <laughs> um, and that, uh, and that we as people who now live on this land have to come to terms with the shame of our ancestry and the humanity of our ancestry um, in a way that would not just make our ancestors proud, but piss them off when they deserve it. Um, and I think that both of those things are very important. And so the the piece is, is, is kind of speaking to that um, and also, you know, speaking to that, that, that recognition of wanting to like go back and dig to your own ancestry so that we're not, we're not trying to emulate somebody else's. We're not trying to like appropriate somebody else's, um, you know, as one, another, uh, another indigenous journalist said to me, it's like, don't take our connection to the land. Y'all have your own somewhere back there, like past all the colonialist crap. You have the teachings that connect you to place and land. Um, dig and find those. And if you can't find them, make new out of out of the old scraps that exist somewhere in your being. And I think that's that's also a, a part of it is to recognize again, like the the things that the things that 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 separate us in terms of our histories, but also then bring us together in the here and now, um, and how to grapple with that, how to unpack that. And it's you know it's an ongoing. <laughs> It's an ongoing thing that I that I grapple and unpack. Um, but child of immigrants is sort of a nod to all of those um, sticky and somehow and 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 at times uh, difficult questions that that we need to ask ourselves. Mm. Yeah, I know that um, the current situation going on at the border. You know, recently Kamala Harris said that she's saying the same thing, similar to Trump. She's saying, "Don't come here now." Um, I'm curious, like, how do you feel about the situation at the border? You know, Biden continuing to build onto Trump's like border wall. How do you feel about that situation? Well, I think, first of all, I, I, there's not really a nice way to say this. If you voted for Biden, you voted for a continuation of fascism. And that's, mm -hmm. I mean, and I'm not saying that to try and be a, a dick. I'm just, just looking at numbers. Um, in the first, you know, 80 days of his presidency, he uh, deported, you know, tens of thousands of people. Um, he's already asked for a larger budget than Trump did, not just for military, but for domestic federal law enforcement and state and local police, um, which is perhaps not that surprising considering who his vice president is. But it's again, it's a it's a question of, you know, this sort of this sort of attempt at harm reduction is not harm reduction at all. It's a continuation of the policies that have been set in place, regardless of Republican or Democrat. You know, it doesn't matter. Um, and actually, if you go back to the early 1800s, there was a party. It was called the Republican Democrats, and I think that that should have just stayed the name. <laughs> it should just be one big happy family, and we're not a part of it. Um, so I think you know, it's it's particularly. Uh, it, it's, it's, you know, the Democrats really excel at this uh, and at, at this sort of trying to paint something, 
to look as if it's uh, as, as if it's harm reduction or as if they're really trying their hardest, but then not doing it at all. And I think Kamala accidentally said the the quiet part loud <laughs> when she said, "Don't come here." Um, because she, of course, uh, in her own campaign, she said that, you know, what Trump was doing was grotesque. And here she is with all of the power and all of a sudden with none of the willpower to actually stand behind what she suggested in her own campaign. And this is what the Democrats do. You know, they you know, controlling the presidency and both houses of Congress, they still somehow say their hands are tied. And I'm like, by who, where? <laughs> There's nothing stopping you from pushing things forward that you say you believe in, and yet you don't. Um, and so I think that what's going on with the border is uh, is just another show of how the Democrats continue to fall short at every turn in terms of what they what they need to do to stand up for you know what they claim to be for in their platforms and uh, in, the, in their campaign speeches. And it also shows an, an extreme arrogance and ignorance. I mean, they're not ignorant of it, but they pretend to be. The reason that people are, you know, coming here uh, is because of what we're doing there. You know, the main driver of migration from the South is U.S. imperialism. And if we would just leave them the hell alone, then guess what? People could really work to build up their own, their own countries, their own. Uh, you know, autonomous and self-determined spaces and do a hell of a lot better. And nobody flees their country because they're looking for something to do on a Tuesday. Uh, this is because of extreme conditions that are brought on by U.S. imperialism. So the fact that the United States creates these disaster situations and then has the arrogance and the absolute inhumane uh, terrorist mentality, really, to say, also, then you can't leave. Uh, that is just, uh, I mean, it really just speaks to the grotesque nature of the U.S. empire. I agree. I remember when um, the Berlin Wall was still up in Germany. It was a long time ago. Oh, my gosh. Um, and I remember back then, even though I was, I was really young at that time, we were able to cross over because we were American and we had to get out of the car and they had to search everything, like our luggage and stuff. Mm -hmm. And I didn't understand why they were doing that. My mom was like, because in the past, people have tried to put people into luggage to get them across the wall. When I got older, I looked back on that and I said, wait a minute. So we could go across, but the people who were born there couldn't go across. It didn't make any sense to me. And as you know, later on, they tore you know, the wall down. So when I see these, bo these border walls to me, I just... I personally don't feel like it's a solution. I think it just, it makes things worse. People will still find a way like to come in. And Adam just mentioned something in the chat and I want to get your opinion about this. He said, the U.S. will never have just immigration reform until native peoples are given a seat at the discussion table. Otherwise, we have one set of undocumented immigrants telling other immigrants they can't come. How do you feel about that? Uh, I think, you know, indigenous peoples should have most of the seats at the table when it comes to the decisions being made on their land. I'd say that, uh, you know, for instance, a, a friend of mine who's Lakota um, and was really instrumental in the fight uh, at Standing Rock, we spoke the other day and he said, you know, Deb Haaland, who's the Secretary of the Interior, could with the flick of a wrist stop line three, but she's not. 
and she's indigenous. So I think it's also important to highlight that just because somebody identifies as you know a member of 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 uh, of this group or that group or you know that gender or or what have you doesn't mean that they are going to be on the side of justice. And I think that you know this is something that Margaret Kimberly, who who's a writer for um, the Black Agenda Report, said to me once too. She's like, I didn't want a black president because I know what you have to do to become a black president, and I wasn't interested in it because it means you have to turn your back on the black people. And so I think that, and, and of course, Obama did that. I mean, Black Lives Matter started under Obama's presidency. So it's like, I, I agree that these voices need to be heard, but I think we also have to say, what's, what, what is this discussion table? If this discussion table is only interested in pedestaling the empire, then it doesn't really matter what the what the people look like around that table you know biden is getting all this you know hip hip hooray for having such a diverse cabinet and it's like but you're horrible human beings right? mm -hmm. and so i think that that is you know the discussion table needs to be flipped over and burned um and then from the ashes we can build something with you know with voices from affected communities that are actually for those communities and not just a token that can be brought up to the highest, uh, you know, the highest corporate, um, you know, the, the highest corporate echelons and said, look, we have this person now, we can check that box. So I, because I think it's really dangerous, and this is something the Democrats are so good at, um, saying, well, look, look, we've, we, we've got LGBTQ people, we've got, you know, we've got Indian Americans, we've got Asians, we, you know, it's like, but it doesn't matter if you're still perpetuating the same oppression um, and the same uh, destruction. So I agree that these people need to be around a table, but I don't think it's the table that's being offered to us. Agreed. I actually, last night, I finally watched um, the movie about Fred Hampton, the uh, Judas and the Messiah about the Black Panthers. And it just boggled my mind that the FBI used another Black person to get him. And of course, you know, later on that guy came clean about that years, years later, and then mm -hmm. committed suicide after that interview, which is, it's just crazy. But it's just like, like, that's when I see people like Obama and Kamala Harris, that's their, their tools to me. I, I don't feel like they're really there to like make a change and to help like black people. I feel like they're just there as symbolism and to continue the status quo. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, one of the things that I learned um, having unfortunately had uh, infiltration uh, in a couple of the movement spaces that I've been a part of is I found out uh, through people who have worked with FOIA requests and things like that, that what law enforcement agencies do is they try to find, they try to get informants who are not white and not male. Because they think that in particular in leftist spaces, people are less likely to question or to go up against, uh, let's say, a, you know, um, an indigenous woman or, a, you know, a black man or what have you, than they are like a white dude. So they, they know this. And so they go after that. And so we like, it's, it's very important that, you know, we recognize that the things that we that identity politics are used against us 
um, and our, you know, the compassion that we have for people and the sort of the understanding that we have of the socio-political realities and systemic oppression, those are used against us. Um, and I think that it's super important that we recognize that so that we aren't just like knee-jerk clapping when somebody makes it to that upper echelon and we just think that that's going to make things better. I mean, the CEO of Lockheed Martin is a woman. That doesn't do it for me. I'm sorry, like... Women can bomb children too, I guess, apparently. So just having that, uh, having that box checked, I think, um, you know, the, the, the powers that be are well aware that, that we're interested in seeing those people at the table, so to speak. So they use that against us in a variety of ways, whether that be putting people in you know, the corporate boardrooms of, uh, of, the, of the state or in our own organizing spaces. Agreed. Um, so I'm curious, like, how do you feel about reparations? Because this has become a hot topic over the past couple of years. Um, in reference to reparations for slavery in this country, I think, you know, Marianne Williamson, I think, pretty much had the largest platform during the time when she was running for president to talk about this. And you see, they shut her down very quickly. Um, but how do you feel about that? Because when I think about reparations, I see it as this is a way to close the black white wealth gap in this country. Yeah, I mean, to me, it's really a no brainer. I, I, I think that anybody trying to make, um, trying to make an argument is, is being disingenuous. And also I think, I read an article, um, I, I honestly can't remember who wrote it, uh, but it was a brilliant article that was talking about the, the timeline. Because when we talk about reparations, we oftentimes just focus in on slavery. Mm -hmm. But that suggests that the only time in history that black folks in America have been oppressed and had been barred access to the basics that white folks have had access to is during slavery. And that's just historically inaccurate and disingenuous. So the, the breadth of the spectrum of time that we're talking about is actually far larger. Um, and so I think that when it comes to reparations, it's really, again, it's, it's a no brainer. And it's something that I think the only reason that people are against it is because uh, when you're used to privilege, the threat of equality feels like oppression. And mm. people, I think a lot of white people who balk at the idea of reparations are afraid that somehow they will be lesser than if not only we acknowledge that the history of racism in this country is still very real and awful enough to warrant reparations, but that if we then acknowledge that, then white people will somehow take the place of black folks in this country, which in and of itself to me proves that it's necessary because it's like, why are black people mistreated in this country? Why would you not want to be treated like a black person? So you're like proving the point by saying that you're against it. Um, and you know, even like, even from just an economic standpoint, even if you were just like a really harsh capitalist ass, it even just makes sense from a, an economic standpoint, the more that you work to lift people up that are economically disadvantaged historically, uh, and perpetually, the more everything lifts up. It's the same argument that's around like canceling student debt, you know? Um, and so I think even if you're just a harsh capitalist, it makes sense. Um, and even if you're, if you're somebody that's like, well, where are we going to find the money? Well, just today in the past 24 hours, we have given Israel $10 million. So I don't want to hear it. 
I want to, I'm glad you brought that up because I want to get your opinion about that as well. The conflict that is going on in Israel, you know, this has caused like a heated debate amongst some people. Um, I have my, my feelings about it. I, I stand with the Palestinians. Um, I think a lot of people, a lot of African-Americans in this country, I feel like we should stand with the Palestinians because I said this in um, the FHL roundtable. I feel like the Palestinians are now, they're like the black people of Israel, the way that they're being treated. And so that's what it kind of reminds me of. And I want to get like your opinion about it. Like, how do you feel when people say, well, like Biden says, we have to stand with Israel? Um, well, it's, it's fascist, which some might say is ironic considering the rather recent history of, uh, of Jewish people. Um, but myself as a Jewish person, feel that this is another no-brainer. And it's not like if you claim to be for, you know, like Chris Hedges says, you're either for all of the oppressed or you're for none of them. You can't pick and choose. Um, and the Palestinians represent not only the struggles of, you know, uh, black folks in the US, but indigenous people in the US. They have been forcibly removed from their ancestral homelands for the sake of a settler colonialist state. And, um, and I would agree, I think we owe uh, indigenous uh, reparations as well. Also mm -hmm. just very much in the form of giving them their land back <laughs> <laughs> um, so that they are in control of the land that we stole from them. Um, but with regards to, to Palestine, I think that, you know, the argument that many Jews make is that, and ironically it's Jews who don't live there, um, is that, you know, this place used to be Israel and it used to be the home of Israelites and Jews from time immemorial. That's true. Um, and the argument is not whether Jews have the right to live anywhere in that region. That's never been, to me, that's never been a question. Jews have a right to live anywhere they damn well please, I think. But it's like if I were to, you know, if we were to go to Brooklyn where my dad grew up and be like, this is now Israel. You'd have a lot of like Italians and Irish and black folks and, you know, <laughs> Latinos being like, um, but no, get the hell out of here. And it's that that's the problem, right? When you say that this is mine now and anybody who isn't like me can no longer be here, exist here, have basic human rights here. Um, that's when it gets problematic. And if you look historically, there have been Jews in that area for a really, really long time. But this this need to bring Jews to that area, which is what, you know, like the birthright is all about. And literally they're like desperately trying to get Jews to move uh, to, you know, so-called Israel, Palestine, um, is, uh, is, is, is just proof that Jews are not a one place people. We are part of this global diaspora. And actually anti-Zionism has a very strong home in Jewish culture. Because Jews from, you know, you know, the, the, the early 1900s were, you know, and before that were saying things like, but this is my home. And th they were saying that about the Ukraine. They were saying that about uh, Spain. They were saying that about Morocco or, you know, wherever, the U.S. They were saying, this is my home now. So the fact that my homeland is somewhere I've never been and have no personal connection to, that I, I'm not buying it. And so I think that that is, you know, to say that you can only be Jewish in this place is also just anti-Jewish, which is, of course, not what they're claiming to be. 
Um, so I think for many reasons, Jews in particular have uh, a duty to speak out against what Israel uh, Israel is doing. And I think it's also important to point out that, you know, what I know Netanyahu is no longer the prime minister, but one of the things that he was famous for saying is Israel is Judaism. And that is really dangerous. And I, for one, have seen it firsthand at these neo-Nazi protests that this gives rise to anti-Jewish uh, violence um, because it, it suggests that Israel, what Israel is doing is synonymous with Judaism. And it also suggests that the US's support of Israel is US support for Judaism. And when Israel says jump and the US says how high, it makes it look like Jews control the, you know, the purse strings, which is of course the bullshit that we've seen in like the protocols of the elders of Zion, which is the book that inspired Hitler and a, and a lot of uh, Looney Tunes like him. Um, this idea that the Jews control the, you know, the, the, the economy of, uh, of the entire world and the, you know, that we in the US, like uh, Jews control everything from the media to, you know, it's just like, yeah. but, that, but that gives rise to those sort of conspiracy theories that are very, very dangerous. So, I mean, again, I think that the rise of the rise of fascism in Israel is predictable just because any time that a people says this is mine and you can no longer be here, um, that is going to cause <laughs> uh, that that basically is a a, a a condoning of fascism and an embrace of fascism. Um, and I think it's grotesque that this is happening. And I think that it's important again as Jewish people that we make that that distinction and say that this is not the history that we Jews are taught. This is not the, the history that we're taught to, to uh, uplift. We're taught to fight for uh, the oppressed and fight for justice. Um, and of course, even if, I mean, everybody should be for the Palestinians, but I think the where it gets kind of icky is that people don't wanna be called out for being anti-Jewish. Um, but I think that, that we have to make that distinction. Um, it's like if I say that you know, I'm, I'm, I, I don't, I hate Saudi Arabia. Well, are you anti-Muslim? No, I'm not. <laughs> Those are two separate things. Uh, even though, you know, Saudi Arabia claims to be the only true Islam. So I think that, you know, we have to make these distinctions because uh, we have to make it clear that states are not indicative of, you know, any kind of religion or they're, they're not indicative of any kind of, uh, of the people that they quote unquote govern. Um, I mean, I don't like traveling and have people think that I'm Biden or that I'm Trump or Bush or whatever, uh, you know, so I think that we have to make that distinction and we have to be very, very loud about um, about standing up for the Palestinian people and what that looks like in terms of BDS, in terms of direct action, in terms of, uh, you know, the, the, the brilliant things that I've been seeing at uh, like dock workers doing around the world. Uh, we need to see more of that. And I think that eventually we are going to see uh, Israel go the way of South Africa, but it is really contingent on people of the world standing up and, and demanding justice for the Palestinians. Mm. Now, I know that um, you've done independent journalism as well. And I, I want to hear about some of your experiences with that. What are some of the hurdles that you face doing independent journalism? Uh I mean, I'd say probably money is a big one. <laughs> um, even though I'm every, every, everything from a George Soros operative to a Russian agent. Um, so, and if that's true, I'm really still waiting for my checks, uh, Putin and Soros. 
uh, get on that, please. Thank you. Um, so well, I, I'd say that's part of it because independent outlets uh, don't have a lot of money. Um, and I, you know, I work with independent uh, independent outlets uh, predominantly because they want me to share what I I write or what I film, and they don't want to editorialize. They don't want to cut stuff because it's you know it might you know uh, alienate some readers if I'm too honest or what have you. Um, so I think that that's a that's a big hurdle, uh, and so I think it's really important for you know for people to support independent media whenever they can. Um, mm -hmm. I'd say another one is, is censorship. You know, just the fact that when I put something out there, it you know it gets very little play online, um, and then and, and and I've done some experimentation um, with this as as some of my some some of my comrades have done as well, which is you name something something that it's not, uh, you know, like it's about Israel, but you name it, uh, you know, like puppies or something like that. And it gets a bunch of shares because it takes the algorithm a while or it, it takes until somebody like an actual human being can watch and be like, wait, this isn't about puppies. And then they can censor it. But like just naming something what it is um, can cause uh, it, it to be censored right out of the gate. So I mm -hmm. think that you know, this is this is a huge issue, and it really speaks to the need for independent um, spaces where people can share. You know, like you're 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 sharing this on Rockfin. I think that places like that need to grow, not just for the sake of you know sharing these things without the the threat of censorship, but really for media literacy. We need to understand that Facebook, fine, if it's too if it's too big to delete, and you want to see pictures of what your niece ate for breakfast, I get it. That's cool. Um, know, know what you're giving up when you log into Facebook, like your privacy, um, but also understand that that's not where you go for news. Um, there have to be alternatives to where you go for news. This idea of Facebook being a one-stop shop for everything from, you know, baby clothes to what's happening in Somalia is just not, it's not cutting it. It's not, it's not working. And when you look at the fact that the American Council, uh, or the, sorry, the Atlantic Council is behind it, it really is a, it, like it's really not, not good. And so, media literacy is super important, not just for, for combating that censorship, but for recognizing what you know the language that corporate media uses to 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 try and dupe us. You know, uh, you know, a source in the intelligent community said, "What the hell does that mean?" That could be the guy that works in the mailroom. Like there is, there is the the, the language that's used to uh, to really uh, promote these myths and these lies is pretty transparent once you get the hang of it. You know, there's always like the, uh, you know, Russia is believed to be, well, what the hell does that mean? Russia is believed to be. I I believed I was a fairy when I was eight, but that doesn't mean anything. <laughs> so you know, really having like the the media literacy to read these things or to watch these things and be like, mm, no, that's not right. Um, I think it's super important that we learn these and that we share them with each other, um, and that we have spaces where we can share those openly uh, without being censored. And so I think that you know, I'm certainly not a tech person, like not in the digital sense, but the more places we can get that are like Rockfin or you know Panquake is something that's coming down the pike. I think that you know these places will be ever more vital 
for you know the, the 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 propagation of information and media literacy in the face of actual fake news that is the propaganda of the state and actual censorship that is uh, combating free speech from people who are actually pushing change. Agreed. Um, I highly encourage more people to start using Rockfin. I know it's different. A lot of people are so used to YouTube. So it, it took me a while to get used to it too. But you definitely have to start using like other platforms. I know some of us, um, I'll actually say YT. I got to be careful what I say here. On YT have been careful about what we post be, because of that, because people have had things removed and like taken down. So we've definitely experienced that, you know, as well. Um, I do want to ask a question about, uh, in reference to like journalism, have you found that sometimes you've had to maybe self-censor in a way, or you've had difficulty getting your work out or your work published because of all of this that's going on right now? I've definitely had trouble. Um, but I, I, I just decided that I can't self-censor because if I'm going to, then I might as well just, you know, go knock on the offices of CNN here in DC and be like, Hey, are you hiring? Um, <laughs> I'm another white female talking head that you can hire. Um, but I think that, I, I think that the, the push to self-censor is really strong and it starts with something small, like, Hey, we're just going to leave out that call to action where, you know, where you say that water protectors are, are asking people to come um, because you know you might like just in case that that ends up being like an illegal action or something. We just want to be on the safe side, so it starts with something small that you know that you think like oh well maybe that's not that big of a deal, but then it snowballs right, and then like they people start asking well well maybe do you need to include this, and then before you know it you're just not including it anymore, mm -hmm. and particularly for someone like one of the things that I wanted to do when I started writing, um, like, cause I started in journalism as a, as a pro audio journalist writing for like recording magazine and stuff like that. Um, and so the shift to political journalism happened after I'd already been doing actions and things. And I really hated the extractive nature of journalists where they would come in, they'd scoop up the story that they wanted to hear and they'd leave. And then you read what they wrote later. They wouldn't send it to you. You'd read what they wrote later, and you'd be like, "I what? That's so wrong." And mm -hmm. the, like this sort of like there was no trust that was ever built. If there was any, it was completely shattered. And it really led to this feeling that you can't trust journalists. And I felt that you know it's so important that that particularly like frontline fights get the message out. But we need to get the message out in a way that really um, is loyal to the message of the people on the front lines. So what I wanted to do when I started doing political journalism was, okay, if I can, I'm gonna go to these places personally and, and hang out with these people, try to build trust and, and gather their stories, not extract them, but gather them and try to do right by them. If I can't physically go there, I'm going to interact with them remotely and gather stories, and and I'm and I'm going to ensure that that trust is is remains intact. Um, and so for me, the idea of self censoring would be it would be going against the trust that I'm trying to build with these frontline communities. 
Um, and it would really be, uh, you know, going against the principle of, hey, you have an important story to share. Allow me to be the medium, because that's really how I want to be, because these are not my stories to tell. Right. And mm -hmm. I think that's the problem is that like a lot of journalists will take someone's story and then they'll repurpose it for what they want. And I'm like, well, then that's not their story anymore. It's your like, you know, fan fiction or something. And so I, I feel like it's really important to to gather the stories and then allow them to kind of pass as unmolested as possible from A to B. Um, and I think that in, in so doing, we like we really have to avoid that self-censorship. And if somebody comes to us and wants to censor us from uh, from a platform, then maybe that isn't the platform for you. And I think that sucks because there aren't a lot of platforms out there um, that are willing to, uh, you know, to print or to share uh, the kind of work that, that, you know, that leftist independent media makers are doing. But I think it's important, even if you're just putting it out on your own channel, then I think it's important to put it out as, you know, as raw and real as possible. I agree. Um, I'm glad you brought that up because recently uh, Joe Rogan actually did an interview with Crystal and Sager and they asked him about like, does he think about the impact, like the things he talks about, like on a show? And he was like, you know what? I can't because he said, if I do that, then it's like, it's not me. The impact on the people that he writes about or the impact of the guests that he has that come on and they were asking him like, does he think about like the impact that it has? Like, I guess like on the audience and he was mm -hmm. saying, he said, I, I, I can't, I can't think about that. I have to like, if I do that, then it's not me. It's basically mm -hmm. what he was saying. I just kind of go with it and let it flow. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't think I'm familiar with his work, um, but I, I mean, I think, I will say this, like I will, I will tailor what I write depending on who I'm writing for. And that, I think that's, that that's different than censorship because I will talk differently to a coal miner in West Virginia than I talk to an anarchist in the forests of California. Mm -hmm. because, and it's not because, it's not because I'm censoring myself in either place but it's because I want to be able to have a conversation that makes sense for me and makes sense for them. And so when I sit down to talk about, you know, the Democrats and how corrupt they are on a porch in West Virginia, I am going to talk about that from the perspective of, you know, a, a poor white person when I, you know, in, in a rural Southern place. Um, which is something that I can I can relate to, having been in that situation. When I'm up, at, up when I'm literally up a tree in California talking to an anarchist, um, and we're talking about uh, you know we might be talking about like political theory, or we or, you know let's say that we're talking about the Democrats, then I'm going to talk about it from a, diff a slightly different perspective as somebody who has done a lot of <clears throat> nerding out. Mm -hmm. on political theory and I'm going to get like down into the weeds and, you know, nerd out with this person. So I think I, I tailor, I tailor what I write and what I, what I uh, put out there based on who, if I know that my audience is a certain person or a certain group of people. 
and that's not censoring. It's just a way to co of communicating. You know, it's like when I go to France, I try, although I think I most of the time fail, to speak French. And it's not because I'm censoring myself. It's because I'm trying to communicate mm -hmm. in that way that they communicate in. Um, so I think that that is important uh, for me because I want to make sure that my point is getting across. Otherwise, why am I trying to make a point? Um, so I, I will I will adjust the way that I write or the the kind of the language that I use dependent upon that. But I still won't I will I, I won't censor what I have to say, and I will I certainly won't like censor people's stories. Right. Um, there's a question in the chat. I think this is for both of us. Um, question for you both. This is from Megan Morales. For aspiring indie left journos, what are some must-have skills you recommend besides no censorship alts or alternative media platforms? That's a good question. Do you want to go first? All right, I will. <laughs> um, I, I I would say, you know, definitely this is one thing I've I've seen some people do, and I can kind of catch it because I do this. You definitely want to research the person that you have come on because those of us that have interviewed people, we can tell like you didn't research this person at all um, by the questions that you're asking them. So definitely do your research. Um, and also, like I would say pick. I don't want to say pick a lane, but pick a category that you're passionate about. So like I'm passionate about social justice and politics. So those are the people I usually bring on. Um, otherwise you kind of find yourself all over the place if, if you're not careful, but definitely I would say pick something that you're really passionate about and research the people that the guests that you have come on. Hmm. Yeah, no, that's, that's, those are great points. I, I too, <laughs> one of my favorite questions that I've gotten by that, I mean, least favorite. Um, but it makes me laugh <clears throat> that people will always ask if they haven't like done any sort of research. Like after I released the movie, they'd be like, so why a movie? And I'm like, so why didn't you bother looking into it? <laughs> um, yeah, it's just so, or like they ask you about, you know, so uh, why West Virginia or something like that? And you're like, dude, you did the bare minimum. Like, come on. Mm -hmm. Um so yeah, it's really obvious when, and I think too, it's like you're putting something out there that you want to be proud of. And if it's, that's not going to make for a good interview. If you're like, so why do you wear black? <laughs> like, it's just, I mean, it's just going to come across like really awful and no one's going to enjoy it. Not the person being interviewed, not the person, not the people watching. So um, I think that's important. I think like if, I guess my my experience is it has a lot to do with like frontline journalism. Um, so with that, I have I actually have like a whole like you know uh, how to do journalism on the front lines and not be extractive and an asshole. Um, but and it's based on like lessons that I've learned in in the, in the time that I've been doing it and continue to learn. Um, but I think one of the primary things is like don't don't walk into a space as an outsider, I think a lot of times journalists will walk into a space and be like, hello, I'm media. And it's like, okay, no one cares. Okay, that's just, mm. um, and like they'll expect people to drop whatever they're doing and like, oh, there's media here. Let's all gather and 
tell stories around the campfire. And it's like, no, dude, like people are busy doing whatever it is that they're doing, whether that be, you know, like disaster relief or whether that be trying to stop logging or a pipeline. It's like, you are not the most important thing here and that has to be okay. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, spend time with them, spend time with them, not just so, like not just from the selfish perspective that that will give you a better story, but so they trust you so that they feel that you're not just there to swoop in, grab a story and then fly off into the sunset. Like you want, you want them to feel that you care because if you're, if you're doing this work, um, you know, as an independent left journalist, then you do care, you know, you care because you see that things are, you know, <laughs> things are bad and you want to try to, help spread the word and, and, and particularly, you know, make them better. Um, so show that to the people that you're interacting with and that you, that you're interviewing, um, and whose stories you want to, you want to share. Agreed. All right. I have one more question for you. Um, besides your EP that just came out, what, what are you currently working on and where can people find, uh, more from you? Um, yeah, so I've, I, I just got back from uh, Northern California where I uh, was out supporting and documenting um, tree sitters who are protecting redwood forests. Uh, and so I'm going to be releasing some, um, some content about that, I think an article and then some video segments as well. Um, but uh, all of that um, is up on my website, artkillingapathy.com. The the EP is up there. A link to my film is up there. Um, journalism, spoken word, all of that stuff is up there. And um, yeah. Awesome. I just want to give a thanks to everyone that tuned in. Also, thank you for those of you who donated in the super chat. And Eleanor, thanks so much for coming on today. This has been, it's been a great discussion and hopefully I'll see you again later. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was, uh, I guess everyone, this was a really good interview. <laughs> so exhibit A. Um, so thank you so much for having me. And uh, yeah, appreciate your work and, uh, and all that you do. Thanks so much. Bye. Thanks for listening. You can watch the video of this podcast at Sabby Sab's channel on YouTube.